Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be sitting with Dr. Judd Brewer today. Wow. Let me just tell you, we have a world-class neuroscientist, addiction psychiatrist, and thought leader in the field of habit change today. And you are going to learn truly what it means to change 80% plus of your behaviors on a consistent basis, on a daily basis, and what that means for your trajectory. Right. If you've been making incremental change and incremental growth and you've been chipping away at your goals, that's phenomenal. But let me just tell you, let's blast through that wall. Let's blast through the brick wall and let's go to a new paradigm. Let's make a quantum leap today. And I think that if you really listen closely and you really understand and you really apply the learnings of today's episode, your trajectory will be vastly different. So I want to encourage you to buckle up. I want to encourage you to understand that Elevate Mind, Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal growth for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I am a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar. Before we dive in, I want to encourage you to follow Elevate Podcasts on whatever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, uh, Spotify, you name it, SoundCloud. I mean, my goodness, we're everywhere. So follow Elevate Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And by the way, we read every single review. I read every single review. Our team is working super hard. I'm continuing to give you the opportunity to dive into outstanding world-class conversations and world-class insights so that you can take your business and your life to the next level. It's about designing the systems of your business, designing the systems of your life, and understanding that we can make quantum leaps through mindset, through mind expansion, and through personal growth in real estate and in and beyond. And so with all that said, I want to dive in. I want to introduce you to Dr. Judd Brewer who is a New York Times bestselling author, neuroscientist, addiction psychiatrist, and thought leader in the field of habit change. He is the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, where he also serves as an associate professor. He is the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at ShareCare, Inc., and a research affiliate at MIT. Dr. Judd has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. His new book is called Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. And wow, you're going to learn so much in today's episode. So I want to encourage you to enjoy this phenomenal discussion with the great Dr. Judd Brewer. Dr. Judd Brewer, my friend, how are you? 
Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on Elevate today. I'm really excited about our conversation. Your realm of expertise fascinates me. It fascinates our listeners. And, and obviously, we all have you know what you've studied and what you've become an expert on. And that comes down to the brain. It comes down to behavior and all these things and all these mechanisms that we have in this gift that we would call our body, right? But before we dive into this conversation, I would love to know if you were to describe yourself in the way that your closest friends or family members, or, you know, maybe even your children, um, your spouse, what would they say about Judd Brewer? Uh, That he's curious. (laughs) I love that. I love that. See, this is, this is how you start a great relationship, right? Is, is, uh, you know, opening up the realm of possibilities of where we could go with that description, right? Because it's all encompassing. But if they were to take that a step further and describe what that curiosity means, what would they say? I just really loves to understand how things work, you know, yeah, and is pretty, um, gets pretty focused on, you know, when, when he, it's funny to talk about myself in third person, but I'll keep going. Um, you know, when he zooms in on something, just keeps going and going and going, really trying to understand it to the fullest degree that he can. I read a book a few years ago called Curious by Ian Leslie. I don't know if you've heard of that book uh, no. or if you've read it, but it really was phenomenal. And I was recommended it uh, by a mentor of mine. And, you know, it was one of those books. It's like, oh, I'm sure I'll get to it at some point. And yeah, I'm sure being curious is good and all these things. But what I found is that the more I learned about the nature and the essence of curiosity, the more it opened up within me. And so Mm -hmm. maybe this is an invitation for the listeners to understand how exciting curiosity can be. Um, But is there anything else that you would add to that? Well, I think (laughs) I think of curiosity (laughs) as a superpower you know, in the sense that it can help us with everything from judging people, judging ourselves to breaking bad habits. You know, it's, it's really, really an amazing capacity that we have as humans. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. And, and judging by the bookshelf behind you, that curiosity manifests itself on a daily basis. And it certainly does within my life. And that's one of the the reasons why I love doing the podcast. And that's one of the reasons and really the energy that propels me forward into this conversation, because I know that we're going to uncover so much gold today. But before we do that, would you describe a little bit about your upbringing? You know, where'd you come from? And, and uh, what did, what did childhood and adolescence look like a little bit? Sure. I was, uh, I am one of four children uh, raised by a single mother in Indiana. I grew up mostly in in and around Indianapolis. And I spent a lot of time on my BMX bike uh, with one of my good friends, Charlie. to, you know, we those would generally keep us out of trouble. I was a paper boy, uh, first with an afternoon paper route, and then uh, being promoted to the morning paper route. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> delivering the morning at the Indianapolis uh, Star, and um, you know, it was, it was a lot of time outside, a lot of time exploring, uh, playing in the woods, riding my bike. Uh, things like that. High school, you know, I did the, I, I, and I also grew up playing the violin, started playing violin when I was about six and spent, you know, in high school, I did things like uh, ran cross country and track and, and wrestled for a bit. And um, 
also played in a, in a quartet. Uh, that was one of the things I loved to do in high school. That's awesome. That's awesome. When did you become so passionate about understanding how our brains work? When did that happen? You know, I think that started around my senior year of college. I remember taking a course called the Brain 101. It was some intro psych course or something. And I was totally blown away by just some of the basic things that I was learning in that. And I even that that interest or that curiosity got jump started when I started looking at the relationship between how our minds and our bodies connect. I remember my my brother uh, when he was married to, got married to my sister in law. She they were married on New Year's Eve, and she got sick the very next day, like right the first day of their honeymoon. And I was thinking, wow, that can't be a coincidence. You know, it's like her body was like, you can't get sick. You can't get sick. Okay, now you can get sick. <laughs> and so just kind of, you know, that just piqued my curiosity. And then, you know, in the beginning of medical school, realized how little I knew about my own mind, my own brain. And uh, started meditating, started learning how my own mind worked or more precisely, started learning how little I knew about my mind <laughs> and, <laughs> and started learning a lot more through my own meditation practice to the point where, you know, it propelled me to shift my career from studying molecular biology to really exploring um, how the mind works and, and developing programs to help people work with their own minds. It's almost like the essence of curiosity, right? It's like when you discover that there's an information gap, that's the driving force to uncover more of that gap. And it's funny too, I think back to what you just described about starting meditating in med school. It's like you, you're giving a new meaning to med school, right? That's meditation and med school. And then of course, layering on top of the science. So I just think that's really fascinating. You were talking about the relationship between mind and body. And I know one of the things that you're passionate about helping people understand and gain more control on is habits and or mm -hmm. our habits. And the reason why I bring that up and the reason why I think that this is a really interesting topic of conversation is that I've learned, and maybe you could help us understand a little bit further about this as well, is that 40 to 80%, depending on who you talk to or which scientist or which study you look at, 40% of our daily habits, our daily actions are habits. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and maybe you could give us some clarity, which end of the spectrum really is it? And what does that look like? Yeah, I would say only 80%. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how people measure that, but in my estimation, it would be at least 80%. Wow. Because, you know, if you think of it from an evolutionary standpoint, if we had to relearn everything that we do from, you know, imagine waking up in the morning. So you have to learn how to walk, learn how to put on your clothes, learn how to talk, learn how to make breakfast. You know, we'd be exhausted by noon. Right. And so if you think of, if you include these types of behaviors like eating, right, and learning how to put our fork in our mouth, um, that becomes habitual. We don't have to relearn that. And so I would say, you know, the vast majority, at least 80% of our behavior is quote unquote habitual. And what that does is, you know, it frees up our brain to be able to learn new things. 
And so at the end of the day, when you think about like going back to the beginning of the conversation, thinking about curiosity. So now when we have an understanding that 80%, perhaps, and you're saying maybe even more of our daily actions come down to habits, which is a great thing. This is a beautiful thing because otherwise we'd be exhausted by, you know, the second hour of being awake if we had to remember all of these tiny little things and consciously think about it. Mm -hmm. So that's a beautiful thing. And when we understand this, now we can have a curiosity of how can we allow this to support us and allow us to perhaps transform exponentially, right? In the direction that we want to go rather than just becoming in what I say, the default mechanism of our environment, right? Or of society or of perhaps, you know, all of these little things that have been planted in our minds and, and in our environment, you know, growing up. So let's talk about that. So if we were to take control over 80 plus percent of our daily actions to take us in the direction that we want to go, you've, you've introduced the, the habit loop or, you know, you've really been passionate about sharing that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what that means. I'd be happy to. You can think of you know, these, these behaviors, they help us survive. They go back to the most basic functions, which is, you know, eat and don't be eaten. So you can imagine our ancient ancestors, you know, in the woods or on the savanna foraging, they have to find food and then remember where it is so they can go back and find it again. And so we form any habit through with three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result, or a, from a brain standpoint, a reward. So if we see food, there's the trigger. When you eat the food, that's the behavior. Our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So that's the result. Or from a neuroscience standpoint, it's, a, it's the reward that our brain gets. Although that's a little bit of a misnomer in, uh, in terms of what it actually means to be rewarding. It really is just something that says, hey, remember this. You know, And so... Same thing is true for avoiding danger. You know, if we're out on the savanna, we're, we're not sure if it's safe and we see some danger, you know, the proverbial saber to tiger, we run away. There's the behavior. And then the result is that we survive. You know, that's the reward. And those, those feedback, you know, whether it's eating food and remembering where it is or seeing danger and remembering where it is, those feedback so that we learn that behavior, like go back to the food and don't go back to where the danger is. We form most of these behaviors this way. You know, think of it as, as simple as um, tying our shoes. You know, we learn how to tie our shoes. We don't trip. There's the reward. And mm. so uh, we, we quickly learn and habit start habitually tying our shoes. So that, that habit loop is at play everywhere. And <laughs> it can be exploited, right? So if you look at social media, it's, they've designed every aspect of social media to play on this habit loop to, you know, it's called reinforcement learning. You know, you do something that's reinforcing and then people are more likely to use your social media product, for example. Or what I see, you know, as an addiction psychiatrist, any drug of abuse, is reinforced, you know, has reinforcing qualities. Even food has reinforcing qualities, not just because of the caloric value of food, but also as a way to make us feel good. So, for example, if we're stressed out, there's the trigger. We eat some chocolate, for example, there's the behavior. Our, <laughs> you know, then, oh, we can avoid that unpleasant feeling of stress by focusing on the pleasant feeling or the pleasant taste of the chocolate itself. And then that feeds back and says, next time you're stressed, you should eat chocolate. 
I think it's really important because now we can understand, right? You know, what it, what is actually triggering a behavior, which ultimately is leading to a result, right? And and sometimes you look at the result and maybe we can get deeper, right? We can we can almost apply our curiosity and say, well, what is truly the result that we're after, right? Because mm-hmm. in some sense you might say, well, uh, you know, the result I'm after is the beautiful taste of this chocolate cake, or it's, you know, this amazing taste of this beer, or maybe it's a buzz, you know, from, you know, having a drink or, or, or doing, you know, or engaging in some substance, right. But really you're after some other result or some alternative result. So maybe getting curious on that and being aware of that. What would you say about that? Well, I would say that's actually a key aspect to breaking bad habits. You know, so my lab's been studying this. I, I wrote a bit about this in, in my Unwinding Anxiety book, where even anxiety can be driven as a habit. Uh, but with my lab just published a study where you know, we have this app called Eat Right Now, where it helps people you know, who are stressed or emotional eating. And we built in this tool where we could actually measure how rewarding behavior is in the brain. And the hypothesis is, is that to change any habit, you have to pay attention to how rewarding it is right now. So often we lay down a habit, for example, smoking, you know, uh, typically people, at least the folks in the studies that my lab has done, but I think this is pretty standard. Um, they start smoking at around the age of 13. And so they lay down a reward value of, you know, being cool at school or rebelling or whatever. And then they start smoking habitually and they are not paying attention to what it's like to smoke a cigarette. So this is also true with overeating. You know, people just habitually overeat. They're mindlessly, they don't pay attention. And so we can have people pay attention to these qualities of experience. Like if they're smoking a cigarette, we can have them pay attention as they smoke. If somebody's overeating, we can have them pay attention as they overeat. You ready for this? It only takes 10 to 15 times of walking people through uh, basically an awareness exercise to help them pay attention as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero in their experience, which means that they shift from overeating to not overeating. So that's really tapping into you're bringing curiosity in as, uh, as you're bringing up. Curiosity helps us say, oh, you know, what am I getting from this? Basically, you know, when I smoke a cigarette, oh, it tastes like crap. When I overeat, it doesn't actually feel very good. So that reward value drops. And as it drops, that helps us naturally shift behavior. Instead of trying to force ourselves not to overeat, when we pay attention, our brain says, yeah, I'm, this isn't doing it for me. And so it's much easier to change or to break any bad habit that way. Cause we're on autopilot, right? You know, you make decisions and you don't consciously think about it. And when you have no awareness of it, you know, you just start to get into this, this cycle to where it just becomes automatic. So let's stop that train and let's, you know, turn it in the direction that we want to go. One of the things that, you know, I think is really interesting is that you mentioned that anxiety could even be a habit or be considered a habit, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, there was a book I read a few years ago called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. (laughs) Joe Dispenza. And I thought it was super interesting because when I became aware of what he's saying and that some emotions that we have, negative emotions, whether it's fear, worry, anxiety, or what have you, you start to realize that these are almost a habit, right? And it's mm-hmm. almost built into your body, right? And, and it, your body almost feels comfortable by feeling that discomfort or, you know, this is what you're used to. So is there anything that you would add to that or stack onto that? 
Yeah, I love this. Alan Watts, who was a philosopher, I think he died in the 70s or something, but he talks about, you know, the ego, you know, this, I think the quote is something like the ego, the self he believes himself to be is nothing but a pattern of habits. And in that sense, I think we can become identified with anything. And as you're pointing out, the more we do something, the more familiar it becomes and more, the more that gets grooved to the point where when we step out of being in that mode, say if we're, if we feel like we're an anxious person, when we, when we don't feel anxious, it feels, it's a little anxiety provoking because it feels uncomfortable because it's different. It's, right. it's, you know, it's, it's new. And so here, you know, the other thing I'll say is that one thing I didn't learn in medical school was that anxiety could actually be driven like a habit. You know, typically I'm taught about medications and, you know, what medications to prescribe for people for for anxiety. And, and in fact, uh, there aren't, you know, medications don't do a great job for anxiety. Uh, so, for example, benzodiazepines uh, like Valium and Xanax and things like that. They're no longer first line treatment for anxiety because they're, they can be very habit forming. You know, you, you're anxious, you pop a Xanax, you feel better. Well, you can't just be constantly popping Xanax. Uh, but our brain says, well, that's good. Why don't you keep doing that? Uh, it, and so it can become problematic. In, in fact, these benzos were so popular. I don't know if you remember the Stone song, uh, Mother's Little Helper. Yeah, I know the song. Yeah, she goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper. Well, they're writing about, I think it was Valium. Uh, they're writing about benzos because they were <laughs> so heavily prescribed in the 70s and 80s. Wow. And ironically, it was in the 80s that this idea that anxiety could be driven as a habit was first put forward. I think Thomas Borkovec was one of the first people to describe this. Well, I never learned this in medical school. And it was only when I started getting anxious about helping my patients with anxiety because the first line treatment for anxiety, you know, the uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac and Zoloft and things like that. There's this number called number needed to treat, like how many people you need to give a medication to before one person benefits. That number needed to treat is 5.2, which means I'm playing the medication lottery with my patients. I don't know which of the next five patients that walk through my door and I prescribe an SSRI to is going to benefit from it. Hmm. And I also don't know what I'm going to do with the other 80% of them, you know, the <laughs> other four. So I started looking at, you know, what am I missing? And started looking into this. And when I saw that this idea was put forth, that anxiety could be driven like a habit, I was like, oh, I never thought about that. And, oh, I know how to work, you know, with habits because my lab had been studying this for a long time and we'd been de developing treatments for helping people break bad habits. So you can think of anxiety as the trigger, the feeling of anxiety uh, can trigger worry, worry thinking. So as a mental behavior, we often think of habits as physical behaviors like eating or smoking or whatever. But in fact, mental behavior is just as as legitimate as any other habit or as any other behavior. And what people tend to report is that when they're worrying, they feel like they're in control, even though they're probably not. You know, like worrying doesn't keep the family member safe. It doesn't solve a problem. And in fact, it makes it 
harder for us to think and plan. You know, our, our thinking brain doesn't work as well when we're worried. Uh, but it gives us enough of a feeling of control that that's, that's enough reward that it feeds back. And then says, oh, next time you're anxious, you should worry. And then we get stuck in these worry habit loops. And I think it's such an important discussion because, you know, I'm sure most of the listeners here would say that they've experienced anxiety at some point in time, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the majority of time when you experience anxiety, you're probably not engaging in a behavior that's empowering to your future, right? You're most likely going to be engaging in a behavior that, you know, hides from your challenges or makes you feel a little bit better or gets rid of that anxiety. So perhaps, and maybe you could shed some light on this, Judd, is that, is it replacement, right? It's awareness and then it's replacement to more of an empowering behavior. Or what would you say about that? Well, here, you know, this goes back to the, you know, the neuroscience of how, how we learn, how we form habits, how we break habits. So the, the aspect here is, you know, we were talking about this a little bit already. One, the first step is really seeing how unrewarding the old habit is. So let's say, Overeating, you know, we start to pay attention. We see that it's not rewarding or worrying. What I have my patients do, or we have this unwinding anxiety app and we have people explore this in the app is we have them ask themselves, what am I getting from this when they're worrying? You know, anybody can do that. What am I getting from this? And they realize that worry doesn't solve a problem. You know, it's actually not that rewarding. So it helps them become disenchanted with the worry itself as a mental behavior. And what that does is it opens up the space for what I call the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And here, my two favorite bigger, better offers. So you can't just pop a Xanax as a bigger, better offer. That doesn't count because it leads to its own habit forming things and it doesn't actually help us work with our minds. So these bigger, better offers help us see how our minds work and work with our minds. And so the two that I like the most are curiosity and kindness. So we've talked a little bit, bit about curiosity, but we can apply this directly to anxiety. You know, if somebody's feeling anxious, they can get curious, huh, what does this anxiety feel like in my body? And we can even have them, you know, pay attention. Oh, is it more on the right side or the left side? And when they go, hmm, I don't know, is it more on the right or the left? They've already started to awaken their curiosity. That hmm is an indicator that they're getting curious, right? It doesn't matter what side it's on, but what that does is it awakens that curiosity. Hmm, what side is it, is it on? And then they can also start to explore, well, what makes up anxiety? You know, and they can see what physical sensations let them know that they're anxious. And just like a thunderstorm, so imagine a kid who's a young kid who's for the first time they're experiencing a thunderstorm and they're very scared. You know, they hear the thunder, they see the lightning. If their parent go, takes them up to the window and says, oh, instead of, oh no, let's go hide from the thunderstorm. They go, oh, let's explore this here. Let's learn about thunderstorms. And they point out all the elements. Oh, there's lightning. Can you see the lightning? Oh yeah, lightning. There's thunder. Can you know? Can you hear the, the thunder happens after the lightning? Oh yeah, there's rain, there's wind. They start to see all these elements and they see, oh, it's not so bad. It's a thunderstorm. And they might even get excited the next time there's a thunderstorm that comes up. We can do the same thing with anxiety. Like, oh, well, is it the tightness? Is it the restless quality in my experience? Is it the heat? Is it this? Is it that that makes up anxiety? 
And as we start to explore the different elements, we start to see, oh, these are just physical sensations. They come and go. They might be mixed together with some thoughts, but these are just thoughts as well. And it, it empowers us to be able to work with the anxiety simply by getting curious and exploring it. Hey, guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital. And you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called The Bottom Line, The 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value-packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. I'll tell you what, man, I'm curious, really curious about um, you know, what actually happens in the brain during all of this. When you think about awareness, right? What you just described mm -hmm. was such a great illustration. I'm I'm viewing this child, right, in two different capacities. One is looking out the window in terror because of you know, what their parents may say about the dangers of the storm. The other is observing all the different elements and and what you also just delineated was almost the storm of our mind, right? The storm isn't good or bad in itself, but it has elements. And so how are we placing our awareness and our curiosity on that and even applying sort of just a mindful approach, but thinking about the networks of the brain and the differences, right? Well, mm -hmm. Could you describe a little bit about this? Because I think this would be illustrative, not only from just an educational standpoint, but also understanding that mind body connection that we talked a little bit about earlier. I'd be happy to. So I'll talk about one network of brain regions that seems to be involved in anxiety and also uh, seems to be involved in kind of stepping out of anxiety. And this network is called the default mode network. And it's named that because it's what we default to when we're not doing anything in particular. So we tend to default to regretting things that we've done in the past, worrying about things in the future. And in fact, the more we worry, there's a study that from 2014, I think, that showed that the more we worry, the more this default mode network gets activated. In particular, a brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex, one of the hubs of the default mode network. Now, the posterior cingulate is interesting, not only because it gets activated the more we worry, but also because it gets activated when we crave substances, you know, when uh, everything from cigarettes to gambling to chocolate, it gets activated. And so here there's this network of brain regions that's getting activated when we're basically getting caught up in experience. So we can get caught up in anxiety. We can get caught up in worry. We can get caught up in a craving. And my lab, when we were first studying experienced meditators, we wanted to see what was going on in the brain when people meditated. 
we found that when people are meditating, that brain region was getting really quiet. That network, you know, the default mode network uh, was getting really quiet, and in particular, the posterior cingulate cortex. And we found that there was this direct link between basically getting curious, observing our experience, and a decrease in brain activity in the posterior cingulate cortex, which fits perfectly with what we understand around anxiety. You know, the more we get caught up in anxiety, the more that contracted feeling happens in there. That contraction may be a marker of this brain activity or the brain activity may be a marker of this felt sensation of, of contraction. And, you know, mindfulness training, you can think of it as being aware and curious about what's happening in our experience. That helps us not get caught up in that. And in fact, when we're feeling contraction, we get curious about contraction. Now, it's interesting, curiosity, my lab's done another study where we looked at different mental states and we found that uniformly people report curiosity as feeling open and expanded, you know, because we're like, oh, we're moving towards something rather than backing away from it. So if you're anxious, you tend to back away from things. It's this protective mechanism that feels closed. If you're curious, you're open. You can't be closed and open at the same time. So here, you know, you can actually bring that curiosity in. You imagine our default mode network's getting really activated when we're caught up in worry. We bring that curiosity in, we start to expand. Our, our experience starts to expand. We start to feel more open, more curious. And that default mode network starts to quiet down quite a bit. And it's almost like this, the the difference between, you know, between stimulus and response, there's that space, right? And when you open mm -hmm. up that space, instead of really falling down that path of cravings or worry, you can observe that and then you can make a choice, right? And so this becomes a practice, not only from meditation, but just a way of life. And that's what I find to be really interesting is because you, you've described almost this curiosity in a sense of I'm expanding towards my curiosity and I'm opening towards this, or I'm running away from something. It's like, I'm curious. I, I have to know the answer or I would love to understand the answer. Like what's the difference, right? You've described that as D and I, could you go a little bit in depth on that? Yeah, there, there's been some research probably 15 years ago was uh, when this was first being published that there are two different types of curiosity, which I didn't know. I just thought there was the type that I tended to experience, which was like, oh, what's this? What's that? <laughs> uh, but it turns out that there's this D type of curiosity called deprivation curiosity. So when we're deprived of information, we have this restless urge to go get that information. And it's a, it's helpful for survival, right? So if there's something we don't know is, you know, there's a wrestling in the bushes. We don't know if it's dangerous. It's probably good not to ignore that. And so right. our, our brain says, Hey, go figure that out. You know, go figure out if that's dangerous or not. And once we get that information, oh, it was just, you know, a dog or something, then that deprivation is gone. We, we've satisfied the, that curiosity because we've gotten that information. I think of deprivation curiosity as destination curiosity. It's kind of like you've, you're on a trip. Once you get to the destination, you're home, you're fine. And once we get a piece of information, that restless quality goes away. It's kind of like we scratched that itch. Interest curiosity, on the other hand, is very different. It feels very different in the sense that it doesn't feel restless like we have to get something. 
it's more about the journey. It's just the joy of discovery. It's like, oh, what's this? What's that? There's no real destination in mind. And so not only is it not driven based on having to get something, but qualitatively, it feels quite different. Deprivation curiosity tends to feel closed, just like a craving. You know, I have an urge to get that piece of information. And anybody, so a concrete example is, you know, it's like we see, um, let's say we see somebody on a billboard and we say, oh, who is that person? They look like a famous person, you know, not just because they're on a billboard, but I've seen them somewhere before. And so we go and, and look, look at them up somehow. You know, that's that de deprivation curiosity. As soon as we look them up, we've got, you know, we've got our answer. Interest curiosity is, is just qualitatively different. It just feels open and expanded uh, as compared to closed and contracted. Is there room for both in the life of a high performer in the sense of, hey, you know what, we need to know this answer. So let's get to it. And of course, we're curious about it, but we've got an outcome that we're getting to. But then also the nature of, hey, let's never stop learning. Let's never stop growing. And let's always expand through this. Is there a place for both? Absolutely. Absolutely. So getting information is helpful. And if we are totally driven by getting information, that can be harmful. So there can be too much of a quote unquote good thing there, especially when information is readily available at our fingertips, thanks to our weapons of mass distraction, you know, our phones, <laughs> right? So if somebody is, you know, let's say they're on a date and they're, you know, they're having a conversation, they're connecting with the person that they're, you know, on that date with. And then, you know, they say, oh, you know, what was, you know, how many, you know, how far is it from here to there or whatever? And then they go and pull out their phone and look it up. It probably doesn't matter. You know, it wasn't like, you know, this is something I need to know this in order to save your life <laughs> right. You know, right now. Uh, it's that, you know, they could have probably left their phone in their pocket and had a better, done a better job of connecting with the person. So that's an example of where deprivation curiosity can get in the way. You know, just because there's information out there to be gotten doesn't mean we should be trying to get it. You know, we could spend our entire lives just surfing the Internet and get nowhere. <laughs> so helpful to a degree. Well, and that's one of the beautiful things about modern society, right? Is we have access to information. It's, a, you know, the the difference is insight, right? It's not just information. It's right. What are you doing with that information? How are you applying it? One of the things that I would love to just maybe kind of dance with you a little bit on is thinking about training our brains, right? So we, we understand now a little bit about the nature of our brains, the nature of habitual actions and behaviors and, and what that means in terms of how that's driving our daily actions. But if we were to think about some practical tips, right, on training our brains, Beyond, you know, meditation, uh, and perhaps we could even talk about maybe some specifics around meditation, but are there any tips that you might suggest for folks other than, and, and maybe this, we do to go down the path of, Hey, a mindful lifestyle is what we, what we'd like to talk about, but what would you say to that? Well, I would say it's helpful to be, to focus in on things that might be causing us pain or suffering, right? So as a, as a concrete example, Let's, well, let's use anxiety because we've, we've been talking about that already. So somebody is struggling with anxiety. One way to train their mind is to start by understanding how their mind works. And so one thing I have people do, I've actually do this with virtually all of my clinic patients 
is I have them, I give them the homework to go and map out habit loops around anxiety. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? And in fact, we put together a free habit mapper. Anybody can download this PDF. I think the website's just mapmyhabit.com. But the idea is you got to know your mind before you can work with it. Once you know how your mind works, then you can work with it. So the concrete way to start that is just to start mapping out our, our minds. So what are my habits around anxiety? Is it my to-do list that I get worried about? Is it you know, family member safety or something like that? That's the first step. The second step is then really just checking in with that cause and effect relationship. What's the behavior and what's the result of that? And the reason that we focus on that is that's how reinforcement learning works. It's not based on the behavior itself per se. It's based on how rewarding the behavior is. So if something's really rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. So if we ask ourselves, you know, is this worry rewarding? What am I getting from this? We can see, oh, it's not rewarding. We start to become disenchanted. So that's the second step where it's like we've mapped out our habit loops. We start to become disenchanted with the worrying. And notice how both of these steps only require one thing, which is awareness. Mm. You have to become aware of these habit loops and you have to become aware of the results of these of the, of the habitual behavior. The third step is bringing in this bigger, better offer. You know, this I think of it as the, the, the BBO because, you know, it, our brain, based on rewards, it's going to say, give me something better than worrying. And this is where the curiosity and, and kindness come in. I, I think of kindness as another category that complements curiosity because we often f- run into habit loops where we are judging ourselves and are, we beat ourselves up. We can ask ourselves, what do I get from this after we map them out? And then we see that beating ourselves up isn't that helpful. And then we can compare that to being kind to ourselves, you know, and, and kindness wins every time. It's a, it's a no brainer. <laughs> that's so, so that's, practical. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's a concrete way, you know, it's three steps on, uh, and it's all of those steps are basically predicated on, on awareness. And I think the other thing too, that it's almost like the superpower, if you were to stack on that is to really being aware of the feelings. Cause sometimes we're not even aware of it and we act in certain ways that we're not mindful of and it's totally subconscious. So I think connecting with that feeling and connecting with your own affect is such a powerful practice and stepping into that on a continual basis. I would love to ask you this because this is almost a dilemma. We were talking about 40 to 80% earlier on our daily actions or habits. You say 80% plus, and I'm going to go with you on that. How long does it take for us to break a habit? Is it 21 days? Is it 66 days? There's different (laughs) studies on that. So what's your number on that one? Yeah, I wrote a, a chapter on this in my book because there's so much misinformation out there about these things. So for example, this 21 day myth became a meme based on some, it was a plastic surgeon who was writing a book about how long it seemed that his patients took to get used to their new nose jobs, you know? So (laughs) you don't, it's hard to extrapolate from plastic surgery and people getting familiar with their new nose job to overall habit change. But 21 days sounds pretty good and it's pretty fast. So I think that plus internet spreading misinformation, you know, boom, now everybody thinks it's 21 days. There was a, there was one study that was done I don't maybe in the last decade and I highlight this in my book as well where they actually tried to do some mathematical modeling of habit change and I think they came up with the 66 day 
term, but their their motto was really noisy. It it really didn't like a lot of the data did not fit. They were kind of it was kind of forced to fit into the model. So what I would say is on there's probably no number where I can say to you you will absolutely break this habit in 50 days and you will start this new habit in you know 42 days it's totally individual and what it relies on is reward value this is something that is very well known and very replicated in the scientific field this has been known since the 70s uh, in terms of how this you know how reward value plays out and the more the more quickly reward value gets updated, the more quickly somebody's going to break a bad habit. So for example, in the study we did with this Eat Right Now app, we found that it only took 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they overate to change, you know, for that reward value to go below zero and for them to change that behavior. So, you know, 10 to 15 times is not a lot of time. If you think about this from an evolutionary perspective, we don't have 20 times to be chased by saber-toothed tigers before we determine whether they're dangerous or not. You know, we have to <laughs> learn that stuff pretty quickly. So if you're really paying attention and something's really dangerous, you're going to learn it very quickly. You know, you're going to break the habit of stepping out in the street without looking both ways, right? If you almost get hit by a car, you probably don't have to do that 10, 20, 21 times before you break that bad habit. It's really about awareness and how, you know, how much we're really paying attention and how unrewarding or rewarding the behavior is. So, for example, if somebody's trying to start the habit, let's say, of exercising, if they pay attention to how good it feels after they've exercised and really focus on that, they're going to start, you know, they're going to build that habit much more quickly than if they just tell themselves, oh, I should go to the gym. I should go to the gym. I should go to the gym. That is so good. That's amazing. And I, I love that it's not a silver bullet, right? Because silver bullets just feel like BS today, right? And, oh, it's 21 <laughs> totally. days. And that's the same thing. One size fits all for every single person, every single habit across the board and, you know, sign, sealed and delivered and you're all good. But this is so good. You know, I think that just really diving into your expertise and being that thought leader in the science of self mastery, I think is so beautiful. And for us to be able to, to delve into this with you is so fun. So thank you. I'm just having a blast. And I would love to know if you were to reflect back on some of your work and research, even working with maybe some US Olympians, even the coaches of US Olympic teams, is there anything or any patterns that you've observed over the years that you've been utterly surprised by that maybe correlate uh, you know, with some of the highest performers that you work with? I, I can't think of something that I've been utterly surprised by, but I would say that, you know, there's an aspect of their experience that makes a lot of sense based that fits pretty nicely with the neuroscience work that I do, which is that they, they're very interested in learning right? Mm. Always learning, always trying to improve. And that learning re often requires feedback, right? We learn as humans, we learn best by receiving feedback. And so they're just so open to feedback in terms of like, you know, performance, like, well, what, what did I do? Quote unquote wrong. Like what, what did I do that, that wasn't as, as good? I even don't like the terms 
good, bad, right, wrong. It's really right. about, you know, that was less helpful for me to achieve this goal. Less optimal. <laughs> yeah, right. there you go. Yeah. And so they're just constant, they're like information sponges. Mm. Uh, and so the, I would have to say, you know, we, we ran this week-long silent meditation retreat for the, the women's uh, uh, national water polo team, you know. And they were just, to- they, so many of them were just really, really curious. Uh, and I have to say that that curiosity is even it's contagious. You know, once yeah. once one of them or a couple of them start get, to get curious, it's it's kind of like it spreads uh, <laughs> organically. And those are my type of people. Uh, and it, it you know just really resonates because that's what we're all about here. Is it's just about learning. It's just about curiosity. It's just about gaining that feedback and not attaching any emotion to good, bad, right, or wrong. Um, because when you fail, it's perhaps an opportunity for feedback and for an opportunity to improve, right? If you never fail, you're never going to have an opportunity to grow. So just, yeah, building on that, I, you know, I've been thinking about this term failure and I don't know about you, but I often learn more when I fall on my face yes. than when I don't, right? So if, if I step over a crack, I just, and I'm lucky and I don't trip then I don't know that there's a crack there. But if I trip, I'm like, oh, there's a crack. You know, <laughs> maybe I should fix that so nobody else trips. So I actually learn more from tripping than than you know going than succeeding, for, for example. And so in that sense, if you're learning when you quote unquote fail, does that count as failure? Such a good question. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's so good. You know, I'm thinking about a a, a particular project that I'm working on right now. And it's, it's a new endeavor for me and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, gosh, I might fail and I might do all these things. And, and, you know, any of the listeners who are real estate investors know that they feel this feeling as they expand, right. As they go into Mm -hmm. a next, you know, a larger deal or a different type of asset. And what you just said is almost the key because then you can move forward with vigor and excitement and curiosity and persistence and resilience because even if you do fall on your face, maybe that's the greater outcome than anything else. What Anything else that you would add to that? Well, I, it reminds me of this term that's used in Silicon Valley. And I think this was even back to the jet propulsion labs, you know, that NASA used when they were first building rockets, which is fail fast, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, let's figure out where the pressure test is here as quickly as possible to see if something's going to work or not. And make sure that we learn from it so that we can improve. All the failures lead to improvement, quote unquote failures. You know, all of the tests, (laughs) all of the blown up rockets teach them something. And so that's what I would say is, you know, design our lives so that we are constantly, quote unquote, failing fast and learning. And we can, I think of this as bowing to our experience as a teacher instead of beating ourselves up, which is often a habit that I see. We say, oh, instead of, oh, no, I'm a bad person, which doesn't help us learn. We go, oh, that sucks. What can I learn from this? <laughs> yes, I love it. Judd, this is such a great conversation. I want to transition into our rapid fire section. We call it the rare air questionnaire. It's about being open to failing fast. It's about being yeah. open to saying, hey, fail is not a four letter word, but it's actually a beautiful thing that can serve us in so many different capacities. And it's also about being curious, right? So I'm curious about a few things. Um, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would you, what would you say to that and why? Uh, 
I would say, so Charles Duhigg's book, uh, The Power of Habit, I thought was really helpful. It, it really, so a lot of the work that, you know, I do with habits, I thought he did a great job of really putting that into everyday language. He has some beautiful stories uh, from individual habits to societal habits that I still remember because he wrote it so nicely. So that, that was a great book. Uh, in terms of books on, you know, I've been reading, I mostly read journal articles you know, as a scientist. <laughs> so I've been reading more, you know, books for, for pleasure. Um, <laughs> and I would say, you know, there was a book that I actually really adored called The, uh, the Art of Racing in the Rain. Mm. I don't, I don't remember the author, but that book was, it was a novel written from the perspective of a dog where his owner was a amateur race car driver. And the, the title comes from a, a, a real life uh, Formula One driver named Ayrton Senna, who was apparently this amazing race car driver. He, he, he died tragically in a, in a race car accident. But the idea was that when it started raining, when he was racing in his Formula One car, everybody else would tense up. Oh, no, it's raining. And he would say, oh, yeah, it's <laughs> raining. And he would just crush the competition. And so that's, you know, that's one thing that that book highlights is just how when we get all caught up in worrying about stuff, we're actually, you know, we're more likely to crash uh, as compared to relaxing when it rains, so to speak. Beautiful. I can't wait to pick that one up. And I uh, couldn't agree more on The Power of Habit as well. Such a great book by Charles Duhigg. We'll put links in the show notes to those books. In addition to, of course, where you can find Judd's book, Unwinding Anxiety, which by the way, is a New York Times bestseller. It's the new science, which shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear and to heal your mind. My friend, that is an amazing read in itself. And you've got an amazing work and a beautiful mind in itself. So I want to ask you just a few more questions before we wrap today. If you had to point to the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, aside from what we've already talked about today, what would you say and why? <laughs> well, aside from what we've already talked about, because I would have <laughs> I to say it's curiosity, you know, one, two, and three, rinse and repeat. Uh, but so I would add, because we didn't talk about this much, just the power of kindness where, you know, just feeling what it's like when somebody's kind to me or feeling what it's like when I just do something small that, you know, it's a kindness towards somebody else and just reflecting on that afterwards so I can reap the rewards so my brain can learn to do it more. You know, it's just that's something that just elevates everyone you know kindness is it connects us it helps us see that we're all in this together and so i would say kindness elevates uh, not only me but i think it elevates everyone kindness can be very contagious as well in a good way i have to give you a huge shout out on that because you have brought the essence and the aura of kindness to this entire conversation and i'm not just saying that i mean from the very moment that we started today you were kind, you were present. And so I just think that there's so much to be said about that. So you're leading by example. You're reminding us that we can be kind to ourselves, right? In our inner thoughts and in the way that we treat ourselves and the way that we show awareness and curiosity, but also into how we show up with other people. So I just want to give you a huge acknowledgement for that. That's amazing. What a great reminder. I would imagine this last question may tie into that just briefly, but if you had to say, What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Is there anything that you would say beyond kindness? 
Uh, it's related to kindness, but it, it more so compassion, you know, is kind of this movement to help when somebody is suffering and which could also be ourselves. We can have self-compassion as well. And I think one way that helps support compassion, well, two things that support it is, is kind of not taking other people's suffering personally, you know, where we, you know, we get, we get stuck in the unpleasant, you know, the, the, the wallowing in it with them where, you know, it's like you reach in the water to somebody's, you know, washing down a river and you reach in to help them and they pull you in with them and then you both drown. So the idea is to put ourselves in people's shoes, but in a way that doesn't, where we're not taking things personally. And when we are able to do that, uh, compassion naturally arises. This this impulse to help because it, it just it's just the right thing to do. It feels good. It's hard to even describe it, but I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about. So that I think is related in terms of elevating everyone. You know, imagine if we put ourselves in other people's shoes before we judge them, <laughs> before we tell them what we think is the right thing for them. You know, just imagine how much closer this world could be uh, and where we'd stop, you know, fighting and killing each other and destroying our planet and realize, oh, we're all in this together, you know, by trying to just really take a moment to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes rather than being so focused on ourselves. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Man, I feel like you just uh, laid out the key to a lot of our problems in so many different capacities. It's about having perspective, right? And stepping into mm -hmm. that. And and I uh, just think it's such a beautiful thing. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Judd, thank you so much again for being on the show. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? Uh, you know, this quote comes to mind. The author James Stevens wrote that curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. And so I'll leave everyone with that. You know, curiosity really will conquer fear even more than bravery will. And your curiosity and your commitment to really following that and sharing that with the world is palpable. And I think that you've inspired so many today to follow their own, their own curiosities and also share that with others around them today. But Dr. Judd Brewer, what a phenomenal conversation. I want to invite Elevate Nation to go check out drjudd.com. Of course, check the links in the show notes because we'll show you where you can follow Judd on social media, where you can buy his books, where you can learn more about him. But Judd, is there anywhere else where we can point the listeners to find out more about what you do? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R, -E and on Instagram at Dr. Judd, D-R period J-U-D. Uh, and then I, I also have a YouTube channel, but the, the website's probably the, the easiest place to find me, you know, the drjudd.com yeah, website. You definitely want to check out Judd's uh, TED Talks uh, because they're all over right. the place as well. They're phenomenal. And uh, Judd Brewer, my friend, thank you so much again for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow. What a phenomenal conversation with Dr. Judd Brewer. I don't know about you, but my curiosity just went from a level 10 to a level 15. I didn't know I could go beyond this, but I'm telling you what, this is the key, right? It's, it's about learning. It's about growing. It's about asking questions. It's about getting deeper to what is that feeling and perhaps hacking the system, right? Instead of being that default mechanism of our environment, we can be more aware of what the mechanisms are and hack them, right? And make decisions. So this is such a great, great conversation. I want to encourage you to re-listen to the show. I want to encourage you to also 
identify what are your top three takeaways? What are your top three distinctions that you would like to apply immediately? Because there's a law of diminishing intent that occurs if you take too long to take action on things that you've learned. So I want to encourage you to take action as soon as possible, but you've got to identify, you've got to be aware and you've got to be really curious about what are your top three key distinctions because you know what, there may be 25 different things, but if you get overwhelmed in analysis paralysis, you're never going to move the ball forward. So go ahead and do that and identify what are your takeaways, but also share this with a friend, share this with someone that you care about, share this with someone that you know would really appreciate this conversation, whether it's a friend, business associate, a coworker, a business partner, an investor in one of your deals, share this with a friend. And until next time, Elevate Nation, I just want to encourage you to take massive action and we will see you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.